Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Slevin, sitting in for Simon Morris, who is in a matinee idol-induced recovery position for a little while. This week on At The Movies, three people who might or might not have superpowers are locked together in an insane asylum in M. Night Shyamalan's glass. This is where they would paint you with big eyes and bubbles of confusion above your head. Two queens, Mary and Elizabeth, are rivals for the thrones of England and Scotland. The fact that it's called the Elizabethan period might give us a clue about who comes out on top. If you grant her succession, we are rewarding her disobedience. What disobedience? She is not our subject. And yet you would make us hers. And a lonely Australian kid raises three orphan pelicans and learns about the ruthlessness of the grown-up world in Storm Boy. Look! They're too young. There's nothing we can do. They won't die. Has your summer been so hot that you simply have to go to an air-conditioned cinema to cool off? No, me neither. But I've still found myself at the pictures a few times, soaking up the big commercial Christmas fair, and for the most part, I haven't hated every minute of it. Aquaman might have been a local film, considering that the presence of Temuera Morrison as the hero's father officially made Aquaman himself half Māori. And that's before you consider the amount of New Zealand tax dollars rebated into its budget. My father was a lighthouse keeper. My mother was a queen. But life has a way of bringing people together. He could unite our worlds one day. Mary Poppins returned with big performances, but a plot that hinges on share ownership and real estate valuations failed to stir the heart. It was also a few tunes short of a decent jukebox. Wreck-It Ralph turned up and broke the internet. That's a capital I for internet, check your style guide. And his best friend, Vanellope, discovered she is related to royalty. Hi. Whoa, whoa, ladies, I'm a princess too. What kind of a princess are you? Uh, Do you have magic hair? No. Magic hands? No. Do animals talk to you? No. Were you poisoned? No. Cursed? No. Kidnapped or enslaved? No. Are you guys okay? Should I call the police? Do people assume all your problems got solved because a big, strong man showed up? Yes! What is up with that? She She is is a princess! (laughs) But best of all, the brilliant new Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse showed us the glorious places that animation might take us if we let it. My name is Peter Parker. I'm pretty sure you know the rest. I saved the city, fell in love, then I saved the city again and again and again. 
Look, I'm a comic book, a serial, I did a Christmas album, and a so-so popsicle. But this isn't about me. Not anymore. But now it's late January. We've had the Golden Globes and the Academy Award nominations, and there are films for grown-ups creeping back into cinemas, like Paul Pawlikowski's doomed romance Cold War or the viciously partisan biography of Dick Cheney, Vice, starring an unrecognisable Christian Bale. Now, maybe I can uh, handle some of the more mundane jobs, overseeing uh, bureaucracy, managing military uh, energy, uh, foreign policy. That sounds good. And that, more or less, brings us up to date. I found someone who will require your full potential to come out. A superhuman serial killer. Don't do this. How can we be the only ones? Maybe we believe something that isn't even true. Today is your coming out party. At least you know what to wear. Cinematic universes are all the rage these days. Marvel is king of this hill with the Avengers-centred superhero series that's about to reach a climax with Endgame at the end of April. DC Comics have the stuttering Justice League, which might have found its feet now it isn't trying to achieve stylistic coherence. Wonder Woman and Aquaman do their own thing to much better effect. And now, the great twister himself, M. Night Shyamalan, has made a modest stab at a cinematic universe of his own, and it's all in Philadelphia. A lunatic asylum in Philadelphia, in fact. Back in 2000, Shyamalan was riding the Sixth Sense wave, and Bruce Willis was still a genuine movie star. Unbreakable was the story of an ordinary Joe, played by Willis, who discovers he has special powers, strength, durability, ESP, and he comes up against the least durable villain in movies. Samuel L. Jackson was Elijah Price, an art dealer with brittle bones but a razor-sharp mind. The twists were good, and the characterizations and acting were better. Unbreakable was a smash hit, and worth seeking out still if you have a video store or a streaming provider who has it available. Two years ago, after a steady career decline, Shyamalan bounced back, commercially at least, with Split, a thriller about a serial killer with multiple personalities, 24, in fact, some of them even quite likeable. What did these two films have in common apart from Philadelphia? Not much, I would have said, until Bruce Willis appeared at the end of Split to indicate a sequel to both films. And Shyamalan's trying to persuade us that he's had this plan all along? For nearly 20 years? Like some kind of criminal mastermind? Balderdash. It's amazing to meet you. It is simply extraordinary. Maybe this will all make sense if I explain who I am. My name is Dr. Ellie Staple, and I'm a psychiatrist. My work concerns a particular type of delusion of grandeur. It's a growing field. I specialize in those individuals who believe they are superheroes. Anyway, 
The new film is called Glass, after the Samuel L. Jackson character's supervillain name, Mr. Glass. In it, James McAvoy's horde of identities, led by the Beast, are captured thanks to the intervention of Bruce Willis's shadowy vigilante, still wearing his trademark raincoat from the earlier film. But both are taken into custody on the orders of psychiatrist Ellie Staple, played by Sarah Paulson. They are taken to the local booby hatch where they get to share a wing with Jackson's stupefied, or at least we hope he's stupefied, Mr. Glass. There she attempts to persuade these men that their powers are a psychological delusion and that there is nothing supernaturally special about them. The fact that they're kept in some bespoke high-tech cells to prevent their powers from manifesting them out appears to be neither here nor there. Willis's David Dunn always sceptical, appears to fall for it. Jackson's price is too stoned on his sedatives to notice much, and none of McAvoy's many personalities hang around long enough to be anything less than annoying. But McAvoy is the secret weapon here. Since M. Night Shyamalan fell in with the producer Jason Bloom, who made his first squillion on the dirt-cheap Paranormal Activity series, he appears to have learnt that less is more, and his main special effect in Glass is the mercurial McAvoy as Kevin, Barry, Hedwig and Miss Patricia, etc., who is much more appealing now that he's not murdering cheerleaders. It's not that long ago that James McAvoy was the skinny Scottish fawn Mr Tumnus in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, but he's bulked up considerably recently and is now a testament to the power of egg whites and dumbbells. It takes considerable physical control and acting technique to be able to switch characters the way that he does in this film, and what pleasures there are on offering glass are mainly down to him. Madam, I am Mr. Pritchard. I'm a professor of cinema, specifically Japanese, 1950s and 1980s, and I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing here. I am very much in favour of Kevin's re-emergence, and yet I find myself in a goddamn prison cell, and I can assure you I am not an... Young man, wait! You will not be able to get to the light. It is set off by distance as well as being monitored by a camera. I know this seems very unfair to you, but you are stuck in this room. Guy, the beast fought, he's right there. You can't beat the beast! I'm not the first reviewer to notice that M. Night Shyamalan takes great pleasure in writing plot twists that surprise and often delight. He's like Jackson's supervillain, Price, constantly three or more steps ahead of the game. With Glass, he's outdone himself. The twists and misdirection come thick and fast, and I expect puzzle lovers to come back to this picture more than once to pick its secrets apart. But to what end? On one level, Shyamalan is deconstructing comic book and superhero storytelling, and on the other hand, he's pandering to fans because he needs them. He wants audiences to know that he sees through all these clichés, because after all, they're just the same story archetypes human beings have been dreaming about since forever, but he also wants to celebrate and exploit them. Or for audiences to celebrate his celebrating of them, 
because in his desire to be so clever that he ties up two films that really have no right being tied together, he then has to explain his own Hitchcockian cameos in those films and why they don't make any sense. And to do that, explaining why this random anonymous character was a drug dealer in one film but a landlord in another, he takes us out of his own story for way longer than we need to be to service his ego. Miss Patricia said that your bones can break if I, like, tap them. Is that true? Yes. Uh, so what's your superpower? Your, your mind? What's mine? You're nine forever, right? Yeah. Well, that's incredible. You can see the world the way it really is. Always. Kid who can never grow old. <laughs> Are you ready? Glass is rated M for violence and content that may disturb or annoy or frustrate. It's in multiplexes all over New Zealand now. How it must feel ruling all that you see. I am but its servant. <laughs> Are you prepared to be its servant? It is right for the man to ask, no? Then ask. Uh, before God, before all of Scotland, before all the world... Yes. You'll be my queen? Yes. Now you're king? Yes. And your master? My husband. The latest version of Mary, Queen of Scots is a terrific examination of female relationships with power and relationships with other females in power. And it packs some dramatic punch, but tries to wrap all of that in a history that even my semi-trained eye can see is a little spurious. I'm not sure what the answer is, if I'm honest. We know from Shakespeare that historical drama doesn't have to be accurate to be truthful, but there seems to be a need nowadays to talk up the authenticity as if audiences won't buy what they're seeing without a historian's stamp of approval. So here's the thing. Mary, Queen of Scots, paints an often excellent portrait of the compromised relationship many women, contemporary and historical, have had with power, but it achieves that at the expense of what we do know about the real women. Perhaps not as egregiously as Betty Davis and Errol Flynn in The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex back in 1939, but it still co-opts these characters and then tries to persuade us that we're watching history. Well, we're not, really. Incidentally, some historical scepticism regarding this film would be a good thing for both the Scots and the English, as the catalogue of failed plots on both sides make Brexit look like an episode of Last of the Summer Wine. No one comes out looking like they have much of a clue what they're doing. Reckless child! I have worked too long and too hard with too much bloodshed to secure peace in our land. Do not let your cursed passion rule you. Tis your voice raised, sir, and you would lower it in my presence. My counsel no longer has value, then I am obliged to withdraw from court. If you must.
It's 1561. Teenage Mary, newly widowed, returns to Scotland to take up the throne. She is Catholic. Queen Elizabeth I in England is not. The politics of the time would normally dictate who each of these women would marry and bear children to, but it doesn't quite work out like that. The gifted young Irish actor Saoirse Ronan plays Mary and the Australian Margot Robbie, brilliant in lots of things, but especially I, Tonya last year, plays Elizabeth. The film, directed by veteran stage director Josie Rourke and written by the American writer of House of Cards, Beau Willimon, pits the two women against each other, but as women rather than as people. Mary marries for love, badly, and Elizabeth can't. Mary is a free spirit, and that independence is not an option for Elizabeth. Elizabeth gets the pox and is no longer beautiful. Mary falls pregnant, but Elizabeth continues to let the side down in terms of that all-important heir to the throne. If you grant her succession, we are rewarding her disobedience. What disobedience? She is not our subject. And yet you would make us hers. What have you produced in all your travels between our kingdoms? Discord? War? Death? And now you have the boldness to doubt my judgment. You had better question yours. I regret that you perceive me as a failure. We serve you fully. With all our hearts. Any one of us would gladly die for you, but Mary is our foe and a Catholic. She is only your queen if I should not produce an heir. And will you, madam? For you have given us little hope so far. Despite your every effort, she has prevailed. She has proven herself, in fact, far more capable than my own privy council. Should I die before my time, we could do worse than to place her on the throne of England. This is Mary's story. It's called Mary, Queen of Scots, after all. But it does something of a disservice to Elizabeth. She did manage to reign for 45 years, despite the carnage going on all around her and the uselessness of her own privy council. It's tough at the top. There are men in this film, although between the cardboard characterizations and the dodgy false beards, you're better off forgetting about them. David Tennant plays the Protestant firebrand John Knox in full Rasputin mode. The film is so pro-Mary uh, that it feels like a caricature of the Protestant side of the argument, even though theology is not a priority for the film's dialectic. I was perplexed by this film because I could see all the good work, but also the short-sightedness. The best scene is one that never happened in life, but is possibly the most authentic. After the murder of her first husband, possibly at the hands of the man who would become her second, Mary is forced to abdicate and flee to England without her son James. Elizabeth takes her in and promises protection. All the way through the film, we've been encouraged to think that if these strong women would just get in a room together alone, they would sort everything out and form an obvious alliance of the sensible. Instead, Mary blows everything up, much like a man might do in similar circumstances. Do you think it might stand with my honour to marry my sister's subject? It is true that an earl is not a prince. Surely there can be no greater honour than to match yourself with a nobleman by whom you inherit such a kingdom as England. I have such inheritance by blood, regardless of who I marry or do not marry. 
We must discuss succession before marriage, not the other way around. Mary, Queen of Scots, is rated R13 for sexual violence and sex scenes. It's being justifiably praised for its portrayal of menstruation and oral sex, so be prepared for some real life to be presented up there on screen, as well as the wigs, dresses and intrigue. It's in selected cinemas now. I once believed in things, things that were special to me. Grandpa, tell me about growing up on the beach. It was called Ninety Mile Beach. I was cut off from the world. Then one day the world came to me. At first glance, the Australian family movie Storm Boy is pleasingly old-fashioned. Back in my childhood, I was wrecked by films about kids befriending wild animals only to learn some painful lessons about loss in the process. Elsa the lioness in Born Free, Midge the otter in Ring of Bright Water, even the original version of Storm Boy from 1976. They all effortlessly pushed emotional buttons in me that I'm pleased to report still exist. This new version didn't quite have me howling on the sofa, but I can report that I did get something in my eye at a few moments. Storm Boy is based on a much-loved Aussie novel from 1966 by Colin Teeler. In the book, a father and son live together on a remote part of the South Australian coast known as the Coorong. Storm Boy is about eight years old, and while his dad is out fishing, he spends his time roaming the beaches and inlets and... When he finds some orphaned pelican chicks, he decides, with the help of another loner, the Aboriginal Fingerbone Bill, to raise them himself. The new film version of the story is set during the period of the original book, with all of the nostalgia for a lost Australia that implies, but it adds a new framing device. Storm Boy has grown into a successful businessman, Mike Kingley, played by Geoffrey Rush. His son-in-law is running the company now, but Kingley is back in town for an important board meeting. It looks like the firm is going to develop some land it probably shouldn't, and people are very upset with them, especially Kingley's teenage granddaughter Madeline, played by Morgana Davies. The night before the big meeting, Madeline tries to persuade Kingley to change her father's mind, and Kingley tells her the story of how he once argued with his father about the three pelicans called Mr Proud, Mr Ponder and Mr Percival and how he wanted to stay on the beach forever but his dad insisted he go to boarding school. The connecting tissue between the two stories is a bit thin but it does give us a chance to see Geoffrey Rush twinkle in the way that only he can and Eric Thompson goes from Australia's favourite dad in shows like 800 Words and Pack to the Rafters to Australia's most hated dad here. The star of the show is Finn Little as the young Storm Boy. It's a beautifully controlled performance, and he holds the film together pretty well considering he's on his own with some scene-stealing pelicans for a lot of it. The pelicans themselves are mostly real, with a little digital and puppet support, and they're fun. My main concern with Storm Boy is the usual reliance on missing mothers as the source of all childhood trauma. Even the new Mary Poppins relies on it, and it's been a lazy shorthand for filmmakers for far too long. Look! They're too young. There's nothing we can do. They won't go. Storm Boy is rated PG for some coarse language. And that's our programme for this week. 
I usually like to play us out with some music I've enjoyed from this week's films, but I didn't think much of the scores for either Stormboy, Mary Queen of Scots or Glass. So here's some Philip Glass instead from the soundtrack to Paul Schrader's 1986 masterpiece Mishima. This is called Opening and it's performed by the Kronos Quartet. I'm Dan Slevin and you can find me on Twitter as at Dan Slevin, that's all one word. And there's more of me in writing at rnz.co.nz forward slash widescreen. Next week, I'll be looking at the Oscar frontrunner set during the civil rights 60s, Green Book. And Clint Eastwood returns as an 88-year-old action star in his latest, The Mule. Do join me at the same time next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.